Welcome to the Microbiology Lab Pod. My name is Johan Bengtsson Palme, and I am an assistant professor at the Department of Infectious Diseases at the University of Gothenburg. Today is the 18th of March, and today we will discuss the evolution of antibiotic resistance. But first, we will talk to our guest on today's pod, Remy Schwind, who is a postdoc within the Embark program aiming to establish a baseline for antibiotic resistance in the environment, particularly for monitoring purposes. But more on that in a bit. First, to discuss science today, we have a team consisting of Anna Abramova, who is a postdoc also in the Embark program, working with monitoring AMR. Hi, Anna. How are you doing? Hi, Johan. I'm doing fine. Thank you. I'm very much looking forward to discuss the exciting papers we have today. So am I. We also have Emil Burman, who is a doctoral student in the lab, uh, studying disturbances and invasion in microbial communities. Hi, Emil. Hello, Johan. How are you doing? Pretty good, thank you. We are furthermore also joined by Sebastian Wettersten, who is a master student working on improving the taxonomic classifications in the Metaxa package. Sebastian, what's up? I'm not doing a podcast. It's it's good. Um, getting more progress on the, my work, getting to the end, like the end phase of my work, which is nice. Yeah, I, I think what's what's so exciting about um, software packages is that they uh, when they start to come together, there's like a lot of components that suddenly work that have not been working for a very long time. Uh, so I, I, I personally have very positive experiences about these last steps of the software development process. Yeah. We are also joined by Mabuba Lumna Akter, who is a master student in the lab working with genes that contribute to invasion success in Pseudomonas aeruginosa. How are you doing, Mabuba? Hello, Johan. Yeah, I'm doing fine. Locked at home again. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy that I'm going back to lab again. Yes. We also have on the pod today Shumaila Malik. Uh, you are a master student with Kaiser Terrell, working with antibiotic resistance in Helicobacter pylori. How are you doing, Shumaila? Yeah, I am fine. <laughs> Happy with the work. <laughs> Very nice. It's nice to have you on the pod today. Thank you. And also from Kaiser Terrell's lab, we have Emilio Rudbeck, who is a master student working on gene epistasis in Helicobacter pylori. Hi, Emilio. Hello, everyone. All good? Yeah, uh, great to be here. Very nice. And we have a big crew today. So next up, uh, Marcus Venne. You are a master student, or I mean, you were a master student. You have just defended your thesis, uh, working on antibiotic resistance development in soil. How are you feeling, Marcus, having defended your thesis? It was, uh, I'm very happy. It went very well. Feels nice to be unemployed now. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I um, I think you did very, very well on your um, thesis defense. We will have reason to come back to uh, to your project and talk more about it on the pod in the, in the future. And finally, for the first time on the pod, uh, welcome Camille Voigt. You are an internship student from Belgium who is visiting the lab to work on invasion in microbial communities. How are you doing, Camille? I'm doing great. I'm very excited. My first time on any podcast ever. So, yay. Looking forward to it. It's it's very nice to have you on. Thank you. Uh, so I mean, your your work was pretty upended here by uh, the COVID restrictions that kicked in around when you started, basically. Yes, <laughs> I'm bottling up all my excitement because I have to postpone my project. <laughs> yeah, 
But you you have been you have been instead uh, been tasked with some bioinformatics works that wasn't really original in your in your um, internship plan, right? Uh, yes, I am. I have to be very flexible, uh, but happy to be allowed to be flexible and learn some new things that I otherwise wouldn't learn. How have you felt that um, the bioinformatics work have gone so far? Because you don't have a lot of practical bioinformatics before you came here, right? No, I haven't. It's not really encouraged, which is strange um, for my courses, but uh, it's going by slow. I can determine that it's going very slow for me, but um, I'm still learning and it's going well every time that I try something new. <laughs> I, I remember one thing that I appreciated a lot of bio, with bioinformatics over doing normal lab work was that when you screwed something up, you could very often go back to the previous step and just start over again instead of having to start from scratch with new cultures next week. And I mean, still, that's not too bad because I remember people who worked with like agriculture studies who were complaining about that if something went wrong one summer, they had to wait another year to start over again. Uh, I, I don't know how I would actually live with that type of pressure, at least not during a PhD. Uh, no, but it's, the, the, yeah. ni- the nice part of bioinformatics <laughs> is really the, that you usually have the ability to maybe not undo, but just go back a step and start over. Yeah, that's what Marcus told me. Like, there's nothing you really can do wrong. And that's the sense of ease for me. Like, I can try and fail as many times, but nothing, no product will be lost or any possible reactions that might cause an insane accident will happen. (laughs) I'm a little bit sorry to break your innocence, though, because uh, there is one thing you can do, and that is that you can accidentally overwrite the output of your entire analysis from yesterday, uh, or potentially even worse, you've had something running for, say, five weeks, And then when you're done, you're like, oh, I can take Friday on this. I will go home early. I will just copy this to this other location on my disk. And then you realize that instead of copying the files, you actually deleted them and your weekend is ruined. Um, Not saying that that has happened to anyone in this room, but it's it's good to be aware of. Yeah, I don't think my project has that big of an impact on my mental health and my uh, (laughs) effort in putting into it. I think it's fine for now. I think I think you're doing great, and I, I think uh, it's it's so nice that you've been taking on this bioinformatics mantle and just uh, just done it. I'm happy that I can just try. It's like okay, just try this for two weeks, and I have the room and the assistance that people will help me if I have a question. That's amazing for me as a student. Yeah, I, I, and I think that so so far you've been doing great, uh, especially considering the. Um, the relatively little bioinformatics background you had before. I hope that we will hear more from your uh, bioinformatics work and your lab work uh, on some later pod. I hope so too. So beginning with this podcast, we are going to do a new thing here on the Microbiology Lab Pod, where we will interview the different members of the Embark program, which uh, I am the coordinator of. Uh, So this is a program that extends into five different countries, six different labs, and we have uh, maybe 20 people involved in total in this program. So we will interview a few of them over the next couple of pods uh, about their work and how that contributes to antibiotic resistance monitoring in the environment. And first off in this series is Rémi Schwind, and you are a postdoc in the lab of Etienne Rupé in France, and 
first of all, I mean, we are now in Sweden struggling with pretty bad um, temporary COVID lockdowns. So we, our lab is essentially locked out of the building, for example. Uh, how is the situation in France? Uh, well, now in France, it's getting a little bit uh, hard, uh, I'd say. Uh, they are like putting in place some lockdowns, but like in some regions, not the whole territory. And um, those kind of lockdowns uh, doesn't keep you from going to work, going to the lab. So we can still do uh, lab work. But is it like in, in danger that you you would potentially lose access to the lab in the coming months? Um, no, I don't think so. Um, well, they ask you to uh, work from home as as most as possible. But um, well, uh, yeah, as long as you need really to be uh, at the lab, you, you can go to the lab. Yeah, I mean that's how it started in Sweden as well. They first ask you to stay at home, and now they essentially force you. <laughs> uh, but we'll be worried, maybe. Well. Uh, so good. Let's talk a little bit of science. Um, you are doing really exciting uh, research within this program on, for example, novel antibiotic resistance genes. So tell me a little bit more about your research and what you're trying to achieve in this project. Uh, inside the Embark program, uh, my goal is to um, identify a new antibiotic resistance gene. And um, to achieve this goal, uh, I use like a specific technique, with, uh, which is the functional metagenomics technique. Yeah, so just to sort of get everyone to the same page here, um, so functional metagenomics, this is essentially an approach to discover both known and novel antibiotic resistance genes. So if you could sort of start with a very generalized conceptual picture, and then perhaps we can get into the details if that is next necessary. How does this work? Well, um, shortly, um, functional metagenomics is based on uh, uh, the expression of uh, exogenous DNA, DNA uh, inside a host and to check for a specific phenotype in the host. Uh, for example, for the Embark program, we are like uh, interested in antimicrobial resistance. So I'm going to check for antimicrobial resistance phenotype uh, inside some host in which I will uh, put DNA inside. Uh, the first uh, step is the DNA extraction, and this is my, uh, I think my Embark colleague will uh, do that part and they will ship it uh, to me afterwards, the, the DNA. And then I step in and uh, it first starts with uh, the DNA fragmentation step uh, to a certain uh, target size. Uh, you can do it like uh, there is several methods that exist, uh, physical shearing or with enzymes, or you can also use like specific centrifugation tubes. And uh, then uh, your shared DNA, you use it to clone, uh, clone it inside a vector, uh, an expression vector, which is uh, usually, for example, a plasmid. And uh, this plasmid is used to transform uh, competent cells, uh, competent E. coli. Uh, then, uh, those E. coli, you grow it on a specific media containing uh, different antibiotics. And if you have a clone that grow, well, bingo, uh, the DNA you, you put inside your, your coli uh, is an antibiotic resistance gene. So what do you, what do, you do then? I mean, then, then you know that this clone has something in it that is interesting, right? Well, then uh, you kind of get back to the first step. You extract the DNA from the clone. You extract the plasmid, 
and then you sequence the plasmid and you check uh, the sequence of the antibiotic resistance gene you have and you will compare it to antibiotic resistance gene databases and uh, if no match is found well you have found a new antibiotic resistance gene and i mean this these these pieces of DNA that you insert into this host when, where you try to express them, I mean, they can be a pretty different lengths, right? Uh, yes, uh, but now we are like seeking to work with a um, certain target size uh, to check uh, what is the, the best size uh, you can have, like in terms of information you get afterwards or uh, the, the more efficient uh, protocol to, to have, I would say. So what I'm, what I'm sort of interested in there is, I mean, is there a risk that you have several different genes in this region and it might be hard to tell which one is actually the resistance gene? Well, yeah, that can be hard um, when you have several genes and, and you cannot tell which one is responsible of the phenotypes, but uh, you can always uh, as well have the clue um, depending on the antibiotic uh, you used uh, for the selection. Uh, if it's a totally uh, different uh, antibiotic resistance gene, uh, non-related, well, it should not be this one. Maybe it's the other one. Or like this, you can select a bit. Would it be possible to also sort of take those specific genes if you have no clue which one it is and sort of express the, that gene only, perhaps synthesizing the gene in some construct? Would that be an option? Well, I, I think there is... Um, a whole step uh, after this technique. Uh, if you identify a new gene, well, a new sequence that is responsible of this phenotype, after you have like to work to see uh, which part of the sequence is really important to have the, the phenotype, um, in which way it works, what is the mechanism mechanism behind behind it, and uh, what is the um, minimal inhibitory concentration, for example, well, there is a lot of things to to look for after. So th thank you very much for walking us through this technique. I, I think it's an, it's, it's an exciting way to find unexpected resistance mechanism, just not looking for what's already clinically known about antibiotic resistance. So what is your background really? I mean, what, what led you to do this kind of work? And what is your path into the Embark program? Well, my background, uh, well, I started studying biology, like uh, I think uh, many people here, um, just seeking for um, understanding how things work around me and inside me. And um, quickly I got interested in, in bacterial communities because uh, I think it's uh, they are like major actors of what's going on around us and inside us. So I got uh, my first lab experience uh, in at the University of Helsinki, where I was studying uh, bacterial communities in polluted soils. And um, it was really a nice experience where uh, I was taught that uh, well, human activity can be really important for the environment and sometimes pollution is not necessarily seen, but on the microbial level, you can see it. And after this, I got, I did a PhD uh, studying uh, the existence of a placental microbiota at the University of Paris. And um, it was also a really nice experience, more on the clinical aspect. Uh, but I really enjoyed like to manage the court, to uh, recruit the pregnant woman, uh, to work with that uh, child uh, mom duo 
Moreover, it was like a really a tremendous debate at that time, and uh, it really taught me criticism about the scientific literature. Yeah, I and, can imagine. Uh, I think, yeah, and um, I think uh, after this experience, uh, well, Etienne Ruppé told me that he had like a embark postdoc position. And I thought it was like the perfect way to combine my two previous experience, like in the environmental aspect and in the clinical aspect of biology. It was like the perfect link. And uh, this is why uh, I was like so happy to join the Embark team. And uh, well, now I'm discovering all the whole antimicrobial resistance world um, with all these uh, One Health theory, uh, the communication between environments, animals, human health. And I think there's a lot lot to do. And uh, I think Embark, uh, by uh, providing mon- monitoring solutions, uh, it, really, it will really help to decipher all the, the mystery behind it. So we hope at least. Yeah. <laughs> so... You touched a little bit on this. What does the identification of these previously unknown and known antibiotic resistance genes from functional metagenomics really tell us about uh, how we can fight antibiotic resistance? Um, well, uh, I think uh, today everyone agree with that. Like antimicrobial resistance is like of major concern, and um, we are facing uh, difficulties to find like new uh, effective antibiotics. So I think somehow we have to maybe change a bit the strategy here and um, try to fight antimicrobial resistance, but really at at the start. And uh, finding new uh, antibiotic resistance gene uh, can help, I think, a lot to prevent the dissemination of new genes to the the clinical context. It's like if we know what's the threat, uh, maybe we can start studying it, uh, try to find potential drug targets uh, if we know the mechanisms and stuff. And this is how uh, I think functional metagenomics can really help uh, antimicrobial resistance uh, fight. Yeah, so you you talked a little bit about this dissemination of these potentially new antibiotic resistance genes through the environment here. I mean... The fact that we find these genes, how much of a clinical threat is that? Is that something that we should be scared of as public citizens or or maybe as scientists within the area? Well, uh, it's true that um, not all the novel genes we're going to find, I think they are not going to be all uh, some big threat. Um, It will depend on many things. Um, It will depend in which uh, environment it comes from, like if it's like really isolated environment with no humans around, maybe it's like really less probable to transfer it to the um, hospital context. Uh, then uh, it will depend on the um, uh, the surrounding sequences of the gene. If, for example, there are like uh, mobile genetic elements or some stuff like that that can ease uh, its transfer to other bacteria. And a question on the question on that on the mobile genetic elements is that something that you can see from this fragments that you recruit into? Uh, well, it's not really precise, but you can have like some clues. I think uh, about like typical sequences that uh, are uh, characteristic of uh, these mobile genetic elements. Uh, it can help. And you will see that through the sequencing of the clone. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the, the thing here is like to 
have like a kind of a big insert uh, with after the DNA fragmentation process. And uh, like this, you can have like a lot of um, valuable informations like uh, the sequence, like you can check for mobile genetic elements if there are like other antibiotic resistance genes around that can uh, mean uh, if it transferred, uh, it will be transferred with other antibiotic resistance genes as well. So it can be a bigger threat. And uh, you can also check from which bacteria it comes from. Uh, we know today uh, that some bacteria are more professional, let's say, <laughs> to transfer DNA to pathogenic ones. Uh, so it's really valuable information, the sur surrounding sequences of the gene. Yeah, I think that was a pretty good summary of when, when and where resistance genes would be a bigger and smaller threat to human health. I think that was a... It, it's good just to... In my mind, it's pretty good to put that on the map, that in most cases, we're actually, in the end, interested in whether this is a threat to human health, not whether we have resistance genes in the environment per se, because we sort of expect there to be a lot of resistance genes in the environment for natural reasons. So I think that's a very good point to make, that some of them are more of a threat than others. Thinking about this work so far, I mean, that you, I know that you haven't gone all the way to actually starting to characterize these genes, for example, but what have been like the bottlenecks so far? What are, what are the main hurdles that we're running into? Well, uh, as you heard, uh, it is a really time-consuming technique uh, with a lot of steps. Uh, but one of the most important hurdles now is uh, the uh, DNA quantity uh, that uh, I need to do the technique. Uh, and uh, since we are like sometimes working with um, samples with low biomass, it can be tricky to have uh, to extract sufficient DNA to do this kind of technique. Mm -hmm. But uh, we are thinking about like multiple strategies to try to improve uh, our DNA quantity, like uh, pooling samples or uh, doing culture or random PCR, some stuff like that. Even if it's, um, if those methods are sometimes uh, biased, uh, I think it can be informative in the end. Yeah, I think that's an, and, uh, it's an interesting field as well, just trying to increase the DNA <laughs> yeah, yield, yeah. so to speak, from the extractions. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, I think one bottleneck would be um, the expression host that is um, always kind of uh, E. coli. And um, some genes that are present in the environment, uh, we cannot express it in E. coli. So uh, sometimes I think we're going to miss some, some genes. Yeah, I'm, I mean, that's, that's going to be a problem for basically all of molecular biology that you will have these kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. first you have the un, uncultivable portion of bacteria that we can't bring into the lab and functional metagenomics is sort of a way around that problem where you try to um, eliminate that hurdle by extracting the DNA and putting it into something you can grow in the lab but then of course as you say then you have the problem that maybe that is so weird so that the E. coli won't be able to express the gene mm. So this this bottleneck is is kind of also of uh, benefit I think because uh, if a gene uh, we are able to express it in E. coli maybe it can represent kind of a bigger threat because like it is possible to express it in another bacteria you know 
So yeah, that's a very good point. I mean, it's you could actually see that as a benefit yeah. for this specific, this specific goal. It depends on the the point of view here. <laughs> Absolutely. So I mean, the main purpose of the entire Embark program is to find ways to monitor for antibiotic resistance in the environment. And uh, just to summarize this, I mean, how does your work contribute to this larger goal of the program? Um, well, uh, first, I, th- I think like since we are like um, uh, studying like different environments, uh, really different ones, sometimes uh, I think we have to uh, have several methods like with uh, different sensitivity, different mechanisms to to find the antimicrobial resistance gene. And um, also functional metagenomics. Uh, well, I think it's kind of the only technique that allows to find new resistance gene since we don't need any uh, known sequence uh, before, you know. Uh, so it's really valuable. And um, in the end, all this work uh, that I'm doing here is also used to increment um, a database called RESFinder FG. Uh, FG stands for functional metagenomics, and uh, it's composed of genes that uh, were uh, functionally characterized uh, by functional metagenomics. So I think afterwards, uh, with this database also, uh, all the researchers that got interest in the antimicrobial resistance gene, they, they can check like if this gene was uh, previously functionally char- characterized or not. It can be really a valuable information. Uh, I think this is really, really exciting work. And as, as you say, I mean, this is really the only way we currently have to get into this purely novel resistance genes where we don't even have an, a hunch of what the structure or function of the proteins might be. So I think that's a very, very interesting avenue. I, I have a question. So if, if you have inserted a long stretch of DNA, which could potentially contain multiple genes, and you see that, right, this stretch of DNA confers resistance to a particular antibiotic, uh, it, how do you single out the gene? Do you knock parts out? Or do you use some sort of prediction software to look at, right, this uh, gene, we might have a gene here, which might have this function, or how do you, how do you figure that out? Uh, well, usually I use the software. Uh, it's called uh, Proca. I don't know if you know it. It's for gene annotation on sequences. And uh, like this, I get an idea of uh, which potential gene is present or not. And uh, that's how I do. Okay. So you, you get you get the output from the Proca pipeline, and then I guess you also get some kind of prediction for what type of gene it might be. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Proca is like a, a tool that annotates the um, the sequences, so it tells you like uh, if it's a, an antibiotic resistance gene or other types of genes, and like this, you can really check if uh, it's related with the antibiotic you use for selection or not. And then do you do you then? Do a test to to knock that gene out and see right it was that gene, or are you happy uh, after the prediction? No, no, no. The thing is, like after um, after identifying the potential new gene or the gene, uh, you clone it again. I would say to just verify that it, it's uh, it's really this G, this sequence that gives the, the resistance. And after, if you want to get further, uh, yes, you can do knockout or or some other methods to just be sure that uh, the gene is uh, responsible of the phenotype. 
So thank you very much, uh, Remy, for sharing your experiences uh, with with your research and with the pandemic right now in in France. Uh, Thank you. Good luck with all your work. We are super excited to see what will happen with it within the Embark program. And um, we have, what is it, like almost two years left. So there's a lot more interesting stuff to come out, I'm sure. So thank you very much for joining us today on the podcast. Uh, it's been a pleasure having you, and I hope we will get, get the opportunity to talk more in the future. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Uh, I hope I will be able to give you like my results in in few few months, maybe. And we look forward so much to that. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you. As many of you know, one of the main fears with antibiotic resistance in the environment is that it could work as a recruitment for novel antibiotic resistance genes that we do not see in pathogens yet. And this is in fact what I argued might be the greatest risk with environmental antibiotic resistance in a paper I wrote together with Joachim Larsson that we published a few years ago in Nature Reviews Microbiology. But this is yet not a proven case. And now there are some indications presented in a paper published in Communications Biology in January that the environment may not be the origin for most antibiotic resistance genes. Is this right, Anna? Well, that's a very interesting question and we're going to discuss it after I present this paper. So the title of this paper is A Framework for Identifying the Recent Origins of Mobile Antibiotic Resistant Genes. So, novel antibiotic-resistant genes are frequently reported. However, for the largest part, it is not known where do they come from. So, from which bacterial taxa these genes were mobilized. And there is a hypothesis that environment represents, which represents a huge reservoir for antibiotic-resistant genes, much more than uh, that identified in um, human and animal microbiota, can play a crucial role in the resistant development due to selective pressure from anthropogenic use of antibiotics. So why would it be important to trace the origins of antibiotic-resistant genes? Uh, First of all, understanding where the antibiotic-resistant genes come from, which would be necessary to effectively mitigate the emergence of still unknown uh, antibiotic-resistant genes in the clinic. But beside this also, if we would have information about many different origins of antibiotic-resistant genes, it would be also possible to trace certain patterns related to, um, for instance, what are the typical bacteria uh, taxa, what do they have in common, where do they come from, and how do they come into connection with human or animal-associated bacteria, as well as how does the antibiotic-resistant gene mobilization works. So in this study, the authors, they performed a sorrow literature search and established a set of comparative criteria which can be used to identify antibiotic-resistant gene origins on at least a genus level with a high confidence. So what they did, they scrutinized previously reported origins and supplemented them in case of missing data with um, publicly available data and um, comparative genomics analysis. And then they came up with the five criteria. So the first one is that the mobile antibiotic resistant gene should have a recognizable genetic element 
which would provide mobility such as plasmid, transposone or insertion sequence. When on the other hand, if we look at the origin taxon, the antibiotic resistant genes should on the other hand have no such elements surrounding it. Furthermore, there should be a conserved synteny, which means a similar order of genes in the vicinity of antibiotic resistant gene between the origin chromosome and the mobile antibiotic resistant gene locus. And as well as high nucleotide identity between those two. And the last criteria is that the presence of the gene locus uh, in the closely related species shows that this locus has been associated with the respective species chromosome for some time. The analysis revealed that the majority of these criteria can be applied to the reported cases. So now we can talk a little bit about what overall patterns did the authors observe when they looked at the reported and reported origins. First of all, they um, observed that all of the identified so far origins belong to gram-negative proteobacteria, which also have been reported from infections of humans or domesticated animals. Um, such bacteria as, for instance, uh, Citrobacter frundi, Eclipsiella pneumonia, or Acinetobacter baumani. And what is interesting is that some of these bacteria are also origins for several different antibiotic-resistant gene families. The analysis within uh, proteobacterial species shows that there is a higher chance uh, to find the origin of antibiotic-resistant genes in the bacteria associated with humans or animals' infections. So this suggests that the potential of bacterial species to be recent origin of antibiotic-resistant genes is linked to its ability to colonize human or domesticated animals. And indeed, if you think about this, in this environment, there are all factors needed in order to, uh, for mobilization to happen. This is, first of all, severe antibiotic pressure, presence of mobile genetic elements, as well as active horizontal gene transfer between the members of the community. However, interestingly, there are two bacteria which are not associated with human or animal infections and instead found in water. So in a way, it's still possible that these bacteria transiently pass through human or animal body where their mobilization can happen. This also doesn't exclude the possibility that the mobilization can happen in the external environment and then trans be transferred to human pathogen. However, this scenario involves more steps and is less likely, especially if you consider that strong antibiotic pressure is required for the emergence process to happen. If we step back a little bit, like zoom out, we actually, the authors report that we know only origins of about 4% of the described acquired resistant genes. And maybe more importantly is that most of them are characterized because they have some clinical relevance or cause diseases. So that makes it possible that the majority of antibiotic-resistant gene origins is unknown because they are either not associated with human or animal body or they, they rarely cause disease and therefore they never been investigated. Moreover, there are classes of antibiotic-resistant genes for which origins are not known at all, including, for instance, genes resistant to tetracyclines, which are really widely used class of antibiotics. 
So altogether, this suggests that probably origins thrive in the environment such as soil, water, or maybe they're associated with plants, underlying that the natural environment may act as a source of the novel resistant determinants. However, authors also point out that it's rather probable that with more data collected in the future, we will uh, possibly see that there will be non-proteobacterial, non-infection associated origins as well. Another interesting observation was that uh, the reported origins are rather recent events. So when the mobilization of antibiotic resistant gene happens, um, the um, sequences upstream and downstream of antibiotic resistance genes are quite usually co-mobilized together. And by comparing the nucleotide similarity, it is possible to see is it a recent event or is it an ancient event? Because if it would be an ancient event, then we would expect high dissimilarity of these uh, extra sequences than we would expect. And the analysis shows that these non-mobile counterparts are rather similar to the original chromosomal loci. So furthermore, this analysis also allowed to um, uh, reveal that the majority of the analyzed up-to-date genomic assemblies show that there are four times more antibiotic-resistant gene families associated with transposases or insertion sequences rather than integron-borne gene cassettes. So this observation suggests that transposable elements, including insertion sequences, may be the main dissemination agents for mobile uh, antibiotic resistance genes. Uh, so first and foremost, this, uh, this finding that the authors did of this paper where uh, they found these 24 uh, different species out of 100 isolated from infections that were uh, antibiotic resistance, that's so cool because that heavily implies that antibiotic resistance uh, is in itself a virulence factor that allows for infection. I think it has been discussed whether resistance genes should be regarded virulence factors. I don't really know what the status of that discussion is. Uh, Emilio, for example, you've been working with resistance uh, virulence factors in pylori. Do you know what the status is in Helicobacter pylori on virulence factors and antibiotic resistance genes as virulence factors? I don't really know, actually. I've been uh, dealing most with uh, bioinformatic, just parsing numbers so far. So I think uh, Shumaila might be the better one. Yeah. Uh, antimicrobial resistance in uh, H. pylori, uh, you can see it uh, as a virulence factor because, uh, because one of the factor to deal with the gastric carcinoma that are the that are the optimal outcomes from H. pylori is uh, its earlier eradication of H. pylori before it flourish itself inside the acidic environment. So if uh, bacteria is resistant to antimicrobials, even if you diagnose and, and if it is resistant to antimicrobials, then yes, uh, you can say that it is it is a virulence factor. Uh, it is an additional virulence factors. Uh, 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 apart from those uh, that H. pylori already have, like CAGE, pathogenicity islands, and uh, YK genes, and cytotoxin, uh, toxic genes. So, uh, yes, 
uh, yeah, February, there is a trend like uh, they are saying that uh, antimicrobial resistance is a virulence factor itself. Thanks for that for that insight. So I think in my in my mind, this paper has like one or two major messages, but there's a lot of gems hidden in this manuscript as well. And a lot of I think there's a, have, it's clear that there has been a lot of thought going into what the different details uh, might mean. There's also a lot of hedging and like. Just because we see this, that doesn't mean that this is the only possible case because we can only determine the origins for 4% of the data. So there's, I mean, they are, they are pretty good at hedging their own findings here. Um, but to me, the big thing, number one, is that most antibiotic resistance genes where we can find an origin seem to have originated in humans or animals. That's, that's the screaming big uh, conclusion here. And the other big thing is not really a... Um, a finding, but it's it is this kind of proposed uh, system for categorizing that this is what needs to be in place to say that we have determined an origin for an antibiotic resistance gene. I think those are the two main things that they really trumpet out here loudly. But then there are a lot of these kind of small things, for example, where they point out that the recent origins for some of these genes may not be the taxonomic context in which the resistance genes originally evolved, which is like it's pretty self-evident that that's got to be it, but I think it's so nice that they pointed out uh, because it, it nuances the picture even more. I mean, it might be that you have a gene that has been evolving for a long, long time somewhere else, then maybe from through some chromosomal weirdness has turned up in a new species, uh, been evolving a little bit in that new species, and then been mobilized. So I think uh, they, they could do a pretty good job but at the same time very easily conveying the main finding but also providing all these subtle nuances around this one thing that uh, i have written up is these five points uh, that they are using to evaluate uh, and uh, from my understanding they sort of like try to introduce this as like uh, almost a model to evaluate uh, these origins like for a broader purpose, not just for this paper. How do you guys feel about that? Yes, that's the way I read it as well. Yeah, I, I think. That... Do you feel that this is a this is a hole that has not been filled yet? That we need to establish this common criteria for uh, origins of ARGs. So full disclosure, I know all of the authors very well. I've used to work in this lab, and I shared office with Stefan Ebmeier, who's the first author, and I know that. When he started working on this, he was tearing his hair off uh, because people have been using so non-standard definitions of when they say that they identified an origin of something. And that some of them have been doing a really thorough job and some of them have been doing basically a blast search, found something that is 70% identical on some chromosome and said, this is the origin. Um, I'm I'm not going to point to any particular papers here, but I know that this is this kind of stories I heard from his desk. Uh, so I guess this actually springs out from from a need uh, uh, that this has been been an unfilled hole that they are trying to fill with this uh, this paper. Yeah, and uh, I mean let, I mean let it be said I'm not an uh, expert in specifically uh, targeting org origins, but I feel that this. These five evaluation criteria cover every single every single uh, uh, 
what is the criticism that I can think of uh, that could uh, be applied to when you're going to evaluate origins? I have a very minor one on the second criteria, um, because the the state state explicitly that in the proposed origin taxon the antibiotic resistance gene is found in a context that does not appear appear transferable by common mechanisms, uh, which essentially by definition misses a typical mechanisms. Um, so like if if there is that there is some kind of system of mobility or transfer that we don't know or have not characterized very well, they essentially say that that's something that we're not even going to take into account. Or yeah. that's the way it's written. I don't get. The, I don't think that's the intention really. But <laughs> if you're going to read exactly what it says in the paper and apply exactly the criteria, the consequence would be that oh, this is not well characterized, so therefore we don't count this as mobile. But otherwise, I, I agree with you. I think they have they have thought about this very carefully. That's clear. Another like oddity in here that I I, I mean it's it's not really an oddity in that sense, but it's a striking number. Uh, is where they report that this is also just by done in a in in a part of a sentence late in a paragraph. But the odds of being uh, an origin are higher for infectious species compared to those that have never been reported uh, in the infection. And then they note the odds ratio, which is sixty six point five. That's a lot more likely. <laughs> Uh, and I, 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 I found it almost a bit fasc- fascinating how, cautial, how casually they handled that, that big number. Perhaps we could talk a little bit about the, uh, a limitation that they had that they said that the majority of the, uh, the literature was on proteobacteria. So there was a bias towards proteobacteria in their analysis. So as more literature becomes available for the other uh, bacterial species, uh, then perhaps we will get a more true picture of what is actually happening. And if that is the same as they publish in this paper, I'm not sure. I don't think they stay so say so either. I think, I mean, they, they are, again, they are pretty good at hedging their bets here, but yeah. uh, I, I think I, I, I share the same concern that, I mean, they have been trying to compensate for that most of the literature is on clinically relevant species and most of the sequenced bacteria are also on clinically relevant species. But you can't compensate for that completely because it's still... I mean, you can never get the genetic information that has not been sequenced. I mean, it's it's impossible to normalize for missing information in that way. Um, I think it's interesting that, that it's so overwhelming that every single reported origin... Uh, except one seems to be from human or animal associated species that said i i also feel like it might be that the origins this far has mostly been described for the low hanging fruits if you see what i mean so i mean i think there's the jury is still out on the role of the environment writ large um but i think it's I, I don't know. How, I don't know if I should say that it's encouraging that that it's mostly human and animal associated, but it's it's at least it's telling, I guess, that it's so overwhelmingly uh, human and animal associated this far. Um, then whether this finding will hold ten years down the line as genome sequencing becomes cheaper, that's hard. To, 
it's really hard to guess about that. Yeah, on that note of like encouraging, I mean, I feel that if we're looking at this as like a one health perspective, it would be not perhaps easier, but like more thankful that if it's uh, a majority of this uh, M, uh, this ABR spread is occurring at uh, at uh, human and human associated uh, locations, because then it would be easier to introduce an intervention. I mean, let's say for example that uh, hypothetically we find that eighty percent of uh, uh, of antibiotic resistance genes spread happens in uh, I don't know hydrothermal vents that are 500 meters under the ocean how in the holy hell are we going to like intervene and do something about that compared to and more anthropo anthropogenic sources yeah i think it makes <laughs> it makes life easier in the sense that it's if it's mostly a selection pressure thing and it's mostly human or animal associated it's basically just usage yeah that's that's the way i mean you, you reduce use of antibiotics you make use smarter you stop using it to the same extent in animals and we won't have solved the problem but we will have lessened it a lot yeah um so i mean the thing with the environment is that it complicates mitigation efforts quite a lot. Uh, at the same time, what would be good about having the environment as a major driver for resistance is that it's generally more low-hanging fruits in terms of mitigation. I mean, if it's if the problem is that we are releasing antibiotics from pharmaceutical production, there's not a lot of ethical issues involved in like trying to mitigate those effluents while saying to people that you're not going you should not take antibiotics because then we might have resistance development is a much harder sell um and much more complicated ethically as well so i guess i mean it's both good and bad news at the same time uh, if the environment would not be that involved in uh, in resistance development so i i I have two two more of those more two more of those hidden gems in here so one of them is the fact that it seems like the same type of resistance gene have been mobilized multiple times from the same source. So like if you have an origin species, you could have had mobilization from that origin species several times into different plasmid contexts, um, which I think is really interesting. I mean, the, the alternative would be that you had one mobilization event and then a lot of plasmid divergence from that but that's not what they're seeing in this paper and i think that's interesting on its own um because it sort of it says that mobilization might not be that rare uh, i mean if it's something that can happen over and over again from the same species then maybe that's actually a point in favor that mobilization might not be the type of rare event that at least i have thought it would have, would have been couldn't it also be that certain genetic contexts are more like promiscuous in the mobilization? Yes, yes, it could absolutely be. Uh, it's tricky, though. I mean, would it would there be a reason to assume that uh, the region around a potential antibiotic resistance gene would be intrinsically more prone to be mobilized? 
I mean, of course, I mean, that could also be a bias that we're looking through. I mean, we're looking at the resistance genes that have been mobilized. And maybe around those specific regions, (laughs) there was more... Those regions were more prone to be mobilized. Uh, So that's why we're seeing them. It's like the anthropogenic principle. Yeah. No, because, I mean, I was thinking that maybe it could also be like a selection effect. I mean, maybe let's, let's just say for hypothetical reasons that all genetic contexts are equally as um, as uh, prevalent in mobilization as all other genetic contexts. But we only see those that give a selection advantage. And I mean, I don't know how many like contexts are um, like actually giving these advantages, but antibiotic resistance in a environment with antibiotics in them definitely gives a clear uh, fitness increase. So maybe in that case, we will just only see those events and it is quite normal. But it could also just be that the genetic context of the antibiotic resistance gene is very mobile. It, yeah. yeah I, <laughs> I, I, I tend to think that, it's the, it, that it is the selection effect that you're seeing. I mean, I was touching upon this, like it's a little bit like the anthropogenic principle. The reason why we exist in this universe is that with any other universe, we, there wouldn't be the potential to have life. And I think... And the reason why we are on Earth is that there is not a lot of other planets that have conditions that allow life. So, I mean, this is a little bit like the same thing that uh, the reason why we are seeing these regions around these mobile resistance genes being so prone to be mobilized might be that that we are looking for the genes that were mobilized. But I, I think the jury is still out on that as well. Yeah, definitely. So I have one one last point here, which is actually also related to this uh, mobility and related a little bit to what we said now just earlier. So one thing that they also write about is that if you have this accumulation of insertion sites um, on plasmids, that also in itself increases the potential that if you have more of those insertion sites and mobilization sequences, that increases the potential that they would mobilize even more genes. So they, they... touch upon that this could be sort of like a self-fulfilling loop that once you have started mobilizing genes it's more easy to mobilize new resistance genes which means that you can have easier acquisition of multi-resistant genes this this is something that uh, michael gillings and his colleagues wrote about a couple of years ago Uh, they discussed whether humans are increasing bacterial uh, evolvability uh, due to our use of antibiotics and i think this is interesting also for some of the other works that we're doing on Uh, potential virulence genes that if we have an acquisition of antibiotic resistance genes that might also lead to that we down the line get an acquisition of other types of genes that might be beneficial in similar contexts and if this is something that particularly happens in the human setting where we treat with antibiotics i mean in the human settings having a good virulence gene would also be something that is beneficial so i think that's an interesting development that we should keep an eye on It's a cool paper. I like it. So we just discussed horizontal gene transfer of antibiotic resistance genes, but can horizontal gene transfer also maintain and make antibiotic resistance genes more easily accessible to a bacterial population, even without antibiotics being present? This was the theme of a paper published last October in PNAS. Shumaila, could you tell us more about how horizontal gene transfer uh, affects antibiotic resistance? 
Uh, yeah, uh, actually, uh, awareness regarding basics of uh, evolution for antibiotic resistance is a major uh, public health challenge. This article basically aims to provide insight into the role of uh, horizontal gene transfer in microbial community evolution. Uh, so um, the concept behind horizontal gene transfer is that uh, bacteria can obtain genes from other bacteria or the surrounding environment. And as H. pylori is uh, naturally competent for horizontal gene transfer, so it can be a good experimental model uh, in testing developing uh, changes due to horizontally transferred DNA, uh, which is when added directly to the cultures of H. pylori, it is taken up by the cells and gets uh, integrated into uh, bacterial chromosomes without any uh, experimental manipulations required. This is the whole idea behind the horizontal gene transfer. Uh, and to evaluate that antibiotic resistance can spread in bacterial population without antibiotic mediated selective pressure, this experiment was uh, initiated uh, by growing uh, uh, replicate populations of uh, metronidazole susceptible recip uh, recipient strains of H. pylori, uh, which were H. pylori P12 in metronidazole free media. Then they divided them into two treatment groups, naming them as horizontal gene-treated and non-horizontally uh, gene-treated uh, group. Uh, the HGT-treated, uh, now I will refer horizontal gene transfer as HGT. The HGT-treated was carried out by taking genetic material from a donor, which was metronidazole-resistant strain of H. pylori, and adding it to the cultures of uh, recipient population, which they were uh, growing. Uh, the donor strains uh, actually uh, carried 34 uh, fixed genetic differences with the recipient, uh, including 23 variants in RDXA gene, one, gene and one in FRXA gene, and another 10 variants distributed across the uh, genome. Uh, during that experiment, they found that mutations uh, both in RDXA and FRXA increases uh, metronidazole uh, resistance. So the growth media of HGT treatment population were inoculated with donors at intervals of uh, 23 generations. Uh, in the following steps, uh, DNA sequencing was used. Uh, the, they have uh, grown at interval of 23 generations to see that, to track the movement of horizontally transferred gene as they spread through the uh, populations which were previously susceptible. During experiment, it was found that uh, in addition to gene flow from outside the population, uh, both the HGT and non-HGT treatment populations are also capable of recombination between individuals in the population. Uh, after evolution in the media without antibiotic for seven weeks, approximately 161 generations were created. Both groups of populations were then transferred to culture media, which was supplemented with uh, antibiotic metronidazole. And authors observed that HGT-treated populations flourished and their fitness increased as compared to non-HGT-treated ones when they were subjected to uh, antibiotic uh, in this study, mostly they have used metronidazole uh, in cultures pointing towards the concept that HGD uh, can potentiate material adaptation to future environmental change. Uh, and uh, uh, I think this article has provided a very good uh, insight into horizontal gene transfer in H. pylori. I thought this article was very cool because it showed what first drove me into working with Helicobacter, and that is that it has such a, I don't dare say unique, but strange genomic situation where they're so 
incredibly promiscuous towards each other in a population, as well as being so open to uh, transformation that their genomes are basically towards more plastic direction. One thing I sort of wanted to ask the general audience here is that since they use this Helicobacter pylori as a model for this for quite understandable reasons, uh, namely this genetic fluidity between the population, and they saw that once they had introduced a gene, in this case a antibiotic resistance gene, that was carried in the population even without antibiotic presence. So it established at a baseline in the population without any real reason for it besides well, being useful, I suppose. So do you, people who work with other bacteria, could you possibly see something like this happening in your pet bugs? Or Yes, uh, very much so. Uh, it has been described in multiple different species that this effect is actually occurring, that uh, even though there is no selection pressure, against a specific antibiotic resistance genes, it's at a population level, it is somehow maintained mm -hmm. uh, throughout the population. Uh, I don't know the exact mechanism for it, but I have seen it described uh, previously. So I can definitely see it occurring uh, here as well. And is that also for bacteria that are similarly promiscuous or that have this horizontal gene transfer conjugation Yes, definitely. It's, uh, it's, uh, I have seen it in, uh, definitely in E. coli and in Pseudomonas. Uh, so um, I can say definitely within those two species. Do you know how often this occurs? Because one of the points in the paper is also that they, they have this donor strain, which come from the same strain as the recipient strain originally, but have been able to well, mutate freely for a while. They see that all the novel loci in the donor strain can be found in the recipients at a low level. So it's not just the antibiotics, but everything that the donor has is present in the recipient at a very low level. Is that something you see as well, that even non-useful genes? I don't think that has... I mean, if you have a very promiscuous spectral strain, it would be more likely to pick these things up. But... The bacteria, I don't think, has to be promiscuous in order to maintain a low level of these genes that has been incorporated into the, G into the DNA. Uh, I, I think someone else probably knows more about this than I do. But if I remember correctly, in the UK, there was high resistance towards a particular antibiotic. So they stopped using that antibiotic uh, and they did not see a decline or at least not a significant decline in resistance mm -hmm. in the pathogens who were treated with that antibiotic. I guess that it's just an evolutionary quirk or, or whatever you want to call it that these genes can be maintained in a low level. I guess if they don't have a severe negative fitness impact. Yeah, so I, the way I understand this paper, they, what happens here is that they have, have the DNA from one helicobacter strain and they, they just add the DNA without adding the actual strain and then the this DNA gets integrated into the chromosome of um, the target helicobacter strain. Yes. Uh, one thing that I think is a little bit makes this a little bit complicated to translate into other species and settings is that these, I mean, the the, the genes that are integrated are going to be already tried and tested in another helicobacter, right? So it's 
quite unlikely that you would see a very big fitness defect from that unless mm. the, the mutations themselves or the resistant variants of these genes themselves is very costly. They have a graph about just what you mentioned where they test a competitive fitness array, I think it's called, uh, where they test the the samples, the strains that have undergone horizontal gene transfer against the ones that haven't. And the ones that have been exposed to this, even the genes that aren't antibiotic resistant, still have uh, uh, fitness benefits compared to the ones that haven't. So in, in the case, I mean, taking up DNA is a fitness benef- benefit in any case. Mm. Yeah. W- without antibiotics as well. Uh-huh. Yes, yeah. in this case. Okay, that's uh, that, that's a. I mean that that makes this somewhat they, they, weird as a global test case for the theory. Uh, wait, how how big is the H H genome? One point six megabytes. Okay. Hmm. If you add a whole bunch of genetic material, and some bacteria incorporated differently into the genome, that could create. Uh, a lot of different, it could create clonal interference, uh, which would, it would increase the probability of clonal interference. So it, it would sort of increase the evolvability, perhaps, and changes in the genome. So, But in this paper, they uh, actually postulate that as well, that it is clonal interference and not, um, not soft sweeps. And they ruled that out. Whatever in their their scenario, whatever horizontal gene transfer has been occurred, it was beneficial, like increasing the fitness. And if you see the uh, graph of fitness, uh, initially the wild type which was resistant had a lower resistance as compared to the wild type which was uh, which was susceptible. Like susceptibles were more fit than resistant ones. But later on, when they introduce uh, uh, introduce uh, these uh, colonies into the culture pH, which have metronidazole, the fitness fitness graph shifted. Like Antimicrobial resistance ones were having more fit were more fitted as compared to uh, those which do not uh, taken up the DNA from the uh, from the donor. I guess it's not that they have taken up resistance genes that made them more fit; it's that they were exposed to more DNA. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, that made them more fit. Yeah, man. Each pylori is fucking yeah. weird. <laughs> <laughs> How the fuck does that make sense? Okay, sure. <laughs> uh, it's really cool, but I feel that there's one thing that I want to uh, address here, and it is the the origin of the horizontal tr- gene transfers. So from my understanding here is that they only added uh, DNA and not a original donor uh, to the media, correct? Yes. Yeah. So, that, so that would indicate that the first transfer went always has to be some sort of transformation, right? Yes. yes. And to my understanding, and I, I, of course this might not be correct, Helicobacter pylori is unique in that case that they are uh, already uh, DNA competent uh, to be transformed without any like uh, perturbance of the bacteria. I don't know if I would call it unique, but yes, that is. Yeah, it's, very... uh, it's one of the characteristics that I know of, yeah. sure. Um, 
So when we're talking about this in a perhaps a, a more larger microbiome context, let's say a gastric microbiome, where it's not a lot of different species that isn't H. pylori, but there are at least some other species. So how would it be affected in that case when you have additional factors that aren't just uh, horizontal genes transfer via first transformation, but you could also have transformation via... Uh, let's say both conjugation and if you if you have some sort of weird phage, you can also have transduction there as well. Um, I think that it's it's a it's a useful idea, but I feel that we aren't seeing the whole picture here that could be happening in this particular when you are seeing spread. Uh, and I also, uh, if the, if if the authors are going to do further research along with this to see if the bacteria could actually spread their genes to another species as well because that would be really freaking cool yeah. that they could like take up all of these like genes and just like oh yeah now we are super fit uh, yeah. with these particular genes and then they could spread them along because that would make them a really good sequester of antibiotic resistance genes yeah that, that was going to be another topic that i was going to bring up that mm. we don't really know exactly 100% how Helicobacter spreads from human to human, but mm. fecal or oral is very likely. Yeah. So I was just imagining in areas that have rather poor sanitation, where fecal matter is well, free, that, and that have quite high levels of native antibiotic resistance, since those are usually rather linked. As you say, a, it's very likely then that Helicobacter enters the environment, and if it can, I'm not saying it can, I'm not really sure, but then be a transmission vector from human to environment to bacterial uh, population. And a good one yeah. at that. <laughs> yeah, I think we, we also think, uh, I think you mentioned this earlier about uh, if the gene is resistance gene is domesticated for pylori or not. So let's say that it comes from a pseudomonas or a geobacter or whatever. It is it has evolved in a particular genetic context. Uh, if it moves genetic context, it will most likely not have a, a, as small uh, fitness cost for the pylori. So even if it can be absorbed, it if, if there is no selection pressure for the antibiotic, I would assume that if it has a fitness cost, it will be sort of um, uh, purged from the population anyway. So one thing that I snapped up when you were thinking about a helicobacter could ask as like a shuttle. And, you know, if it has a high enough uh, selection event, uh, selection pressure, uh, it will be selected against. And I, I agree with that over an evolutionary time scale, but I feel that it's it will be sufficient for to have on a smaller time scale. You could have the event of it sequestering the gene and then uh, allocating it to the human microbiome, even if there is a fitness cost to harboring that particular antibiotic resistance genes, if there isn't a large enough pressure to remove it. Like, of course, it could be bad for it, but it could perhaps not be bad enough for it to be completely removed. And then it could be harbored in that particular timescale. Uh, how that then further along goes, as you said, that perhaps the genetic context will induce a large fitness cost in the third line then in that case. Perhaps that might be the case. Uh, but I just, I'm just thinking that there is a timescale here that we need to be aware of. Yeah, and as the paper shows, once you have introduced 
such a low side into Helicobacter, it remains. Yeah. And, and that is actually what we see with a lot of genes in Helicobacter. There's this uh, uh, CAG patho- pathogenicity island that has been shown to carry quite a hefty cost to the bacterium in terms of fitness. Where um, I'm not really sure if what I'm saying is correct, but there, let's say Africa, Helicobacter in Africa do not have this pathogenicity island because evolution and because of the pressure. If you introduce it, it's removed. Whereas uh, populations in Southeast Asia carry this quite a lot. So even despite the island carrying some, it's big. So it carries uh, replication costs, of course. You see this pattern in helicobacter. But I guess in that case, it has to do also with the genetic background and to some extent, like the domestication of, well, or the domestication of the genomic island, but it's also like the the rest of the genome will adapt to carry Mm -hmm. this, right? So I think this is... um, Also, also to add to that, uh, I read in a paper that this particular island also interacts with the human hosts in that the human host genome seems to have an effect on whether this island can be fully tolerated or allowed to bloom, so to speak. They are investigating genes that are already basically domesticated in Helicobacter pylori. So I don't think they're, in this case, I don't think, think that there should be a big fitness deficiency associated with taking up these genes, especially since Helicobacter pylori is so plastic. I mean, it's pretty used to um, reorganizing its genome in different mm. ways. So I I feel that I'm not so surprised that there's not a big fitness cost to this. I, I would be much more surprised if you introduced DNA from some other origin uh, that mm. is not Helicobacter pylori and it took that up and it had no fitness cost. That would be surprising. Mm. Yeah, but it's also that they showed that the, the colony of Helicobacter shares this gene in between each other by conjugation, so that once the selection pressure is applied, it can just explode. Whereas if you don't have that insertion, they will perish. But do they really share it through gene transfer? Or is it just that it's, it's not they, just they, clonal expansion? Actually, uh, they have, uh, they have uh, used uh, the generation to show that they are transferring the genes and uh, you can see it in uh, uh, gene flow from horizontal gene transfer provides an force that influence allele frequencies. Yeah, well, they discuss this. Either it's you add it and it just remains, it, that is all, or you add it and they spread it among the population themselves via conjugation or something similar. Could it just be that that particular... Uh, resistance gene is hitchhiking on some other gene that was transferred, and then you just see an explosion of that particular um, bacteria. But still, then you wouldn't see this soft selective sweep where the variation around the low size is maintained. Then you would have a hard selective sweep where this particular haplotype is found everywhere, which they don't. So I think that's what they use as evidence for. I, st- I still don't get how they would separate the two scenarios from each other. To, to me, it seems like they would be that both both a conjugation theory or and a multiple uptake theory would re- yield the same result here. Yeah, possibly. 
but yeah, overall, uh, I think this paper is a great introduction for the rest of you into uh, the genomic situation of Helicobacter. It is more messy, especially when you try to follow the evolutionary pathways and it turns out it reshuffles its genome every now and then. Yeah, imagine doing my job (laughs) (laughs) where I'm trying to assemble some 4,000 genomes and compare them to each other. I just really like that when you talked about the different uh, like genomes of Helicobacter pylori, and you thought that yeah, the genome of Helicobacter pylori is more su- more of a suggestion than anything else. <laughs> Will independently evolving populations of bacteria? respond similarly when exposed to antibiotics. A recent study published in PNAS in January this year suggests that genetic background affects which path bacteria take towards resistance. Mabuba, what can you tell us about this exciting subject? Well, if I have to answer your question, then I would say no. If independently evolving population of bacteria are are exposed with antibiotics, they will not respond similarly. Whenever bacteria are exposed with antibiotics, there is a possibility that uh, that bacteria will develop resistance to that antibiotics. But uh, it's hard to gaze what is the evolutionary pathways that aid this resistance development. Well, considering this point, Card and colleagues performed a a so-called long-term evolution experiment to identify the evolutionary cues in resistance development in bacteria. They found that clones derived from same ancestry strain showed difference in resistance when challenged with four types of antibiotics, namely ampicillin, ciprofloxacin, ceftriaxin, and tetracycline. So what they did, they took E. coli as ancestry strain and isolated 12 replicate population from this ancestor strain. Then, these 12 replicates were propagated uh, every day for over 30 years without any exposure of antibiotics. Interestingly, they observed some clones uh, showed higher antibiotic resistance towards some antibiotics, while others not. Now, the question is, all of the clones actually came from same ancestor strain. Then why there is a difference in resistance development? Replicate population evolved from same ancestor can accumulate genetic differences spontaneously. And these genetic differences can influence the resistance development at the end. Mm. Additionally, mutation in genetic level also depends on what type of antibiotics are being exposed to that population. That means depending on the type of antibiotic, the mutation in different genes can be varied. After having the resistant clones, the authors did whole genome sequencing to identify the mutations occurred in in those clones. Well, they found that most common mutation was single-base substitution, which was observed uh, around uh, 35% cases. They also found large deletion, large insertion, and they also observed uh, mutation in intergenic region. Then they investigated the functionality of the genes got mutated in their experiment. And uh, they found that higher proportion of mutation was found in regulatory gene, 
and the second highest was in for metabolites. They also found uh, mutation in transporter and also genes involved in transcription and translation. They question that if the mutation that happened in those experiments is just by a chance or this has happened due to the evolution. They calculated values for expected mutation and observed mutation to infer if the observed value is higher or lower than the expected value. And they found that regulatory genes had mutations about five times higher than the expected value. And this result is highly significant. They also found that when two populations are exposed with same antibiotics, they have more similar mutation in genes comparing to when the populations are exposed with diff two different antibiotics. Uh, altogether, they identified five signature genes whose, whose mutation were highly related with the specific antibiotic. For example, they found LRT gene mutation, which was found in C-resistant line. They found OMPR mutation that was involved with TEP-resistant line. They also found OMPF, HNS gene, for e gene. And overall, they found that uh, more higher mutation was found for OMPF and OMPR Is there like any clinical use of the research available? I mean, like if you have an infection with antibiotic resistance, like is there any way you can use this information of the background for the bacteria? Well, the thing is, uh, you know, if we know that what are the genes that get mutated for to, to develop this resistance, then maybe we can target those genes. So they are not developing resistance. Yeah. yeah. Problem is, uh, it is not that simple because they found that depending on the genetic background, it can change. It is not like we found we found a stable pathway that always happening. This is not because. I think I already told you that uh, bacterial population can accumulate genetic differences spontaneously. So just inferring this is really hard. But at least we can get some ideas. So I think that is important. That, that, that's why this study could be important. Yeah. yeah. I found the study overall very interesting. I think there's, mm -hmm. there's probably a lot of follow-up studies that could be made with the... Uh, what they looked at, because they, they, they have a kind of a wide range of focus where they look at different antibiotica. Maybe they can make somewhere to just maybe look at one antibiotica and have a wider study using one, because there's such a large difference between the antibiotica of the effects, I feel like. When you say that they found different mutations depending on what antibiotics was used, when did they see this, these mutations? Was it we have exposed them, and after exposing them, we see these particular mutations? Mm -mm. Well, not actually. So I think I should tell a bit more about their experiment, like what is long-term evolution experiment. Uh, so actually, you know, they took the ancestor, and after and from this ancestor, they uh, isolated twelve or yeah, the twelve clones or replicate replicate population, and this population actually acquired mutation. And that time there was no exposure of antibiotics. And after and from and this 12 population, 
then then different clones was propagated from those 12 population and those clones they show different mutation and those mutation actually have no connection with the antibiotic exposure but after having clone they then exposed the antibiotics to select if actually there is any antibiotic resistant clones and then they found okay this this clones actually antibiotic resistant and they did the sequencing to identify the mutation but, but isn't that always what happens when you separate two populations that there is a probability that they will start to diverge uh yes but the thing is the first case they found the resistant development without antibiotic selection that means that this is not always the case that there is antibiotic selection and then resistant development. No, maybe without exposure of antibiotic, they can have that resistance. Okay, so chance. I don't know, I can't remember if you actually said the numbers, but uh, the quick numbers that I wrote down is like, uh, in, in one antibiotic, uh, if you have the same background, you have um, uh, around 15% uh, of the same mutations found. And then, if you have different backgrounds in the same, it's around 3% of the mutations that are the same in the population that is grown. So it's like an 11-12% difference in uh, how similar the mutations are gained. That's a pretty interesting number. I mean, 10% is, is it's significant and it's still not like all the mutations will be the same and it's only dependent on the antibiotic. And it, it, shows, it shows there's like a difference uh, between the background because it's not just noise if it's like 15%. And I'm also thinking if uh, the clones can develop resistance without the selection pressure, then if it could happen, like we are taking resistant clones, there is no selection pressure, they can reverse back to non-resistant. What do you think, actually? Yes, we know that that happens. Ah. Uh, I mean, it, it's, it's one of those things that happens in the lab with especially costly uh, resistance mutations. Uh, but I guess, I mean, in theory, it can happen with any, with any resistance mutation that is fitness neutral or has a small fitness cost. But if it, if it, has, a fitness, if it, if it has a fitness gain mm -hmm. to have the mutation, it's very unlikely to ever mutate back. Uh -huh, okay. I also know that this effect occurs with uh, non-antibiotic resistance genes as well. So it's not only inherent in yeah, antibiotic yeah. resistance. Okay. No, I mean, nothing of this is really specific to antibiotic resistance, except for that you have exposure to an antibiotic in this. One question maybe Yuan or Emil maybe knows more about, but they use, I think it's the same in like the other paper you talked about, but they use a moderate amount of antibiotica because it's easier to do for research, right? Instead of like using clinical uh, amounts. Um, does that like come with biases in what kind of mutations actually occur? I think it very much depends on the antibiotic that you're yeah. using. Yeah, they also use like what, five, six different antibiotics. So it's it's difficult to like, uh, maybe that's like my follow-up study that you should focus on one. Because I feel like if you do moderate amounts, some of the mutations will not be strong enough to work in clinical, clinically relevant amounts, I guess. Yeah. So, like, there will be a bias for, like, weak mutations. Uh, that might best definitely be a case so that you don't need to, uh, if it is the case, that more uh, 
that mutations that are more efficacious, that at becoming resistant, has a larger fitness cost for that particular mutant. Uh, I don't know if that is the case, but if that is the case, then yes, definitely. One of the antibiotics I am most familiar with is ciprofloxacin, and there you have this set of mutations where some combinations of them won't really give you clinical, rele clinically relevant resistance, but you would have uh, some degree of uh, resistance. So, like, you would be able to resist sub sub MIC levels of the antibiotic, but not clinically relevant amounts. And then you have some high efficiency mutations um, that will be of clinical relevance. The interplay with, between those different mutations is pretty complicated because some combinations are um, come with a high fitness cost and some combinations are coming with basically neutral fitness uh, yeah. impacts. So it's it's very, it's kind of important which combination of mutations you obtain in that case. And I guess it could be something similar here, although I don't know these specific <laughs> mechanisms and genes that they are bringing up in the paper. Yeah, <clears throat> they do say that resistance rarely reached levels defined as clinically relevant. So, but, but that's the kind of... Potenti potentially because it's unnecessary yeah. if you never see clinical clinically relevant resistance. Because yeah. they have a very... If, if, I think it's figure two, which Mahbuba talked about a bit. It was like... It's a very, very high overrepresentation of gene regulation mutations. Yeah. But none, nothing was like found in any other category that was significant. Maybe that's like one category that is affected by the bias, maybe. Which is also sort of what I would have expected. Yeah. <laughs> that this, uh, if you're going, going to find more than you expected of anything, it would have been gene regulation. That, that makes a lot of sense to me. Mutations in regulatory genes is something that has the potential to tilt the phenotype of the bacterium maybe the most in, with just a single or just a few mutations. So I think this makes a lot of sense. So I would also like to make one minor comment about the time scale of these experiments. Was it 30 years they did this? Yes, 30 years. Yeah, this is the Lensky experiment. Uh, so it, the, the last author of this paper, Richard Lensky, he, he initiated this huge um, E. coli evolution experiment uh, early on in his career, and it's still ongoing. So, I mean, this, this, is, this is an experiment that still runs. It's, I mean, that's... Poor, poor PhD students of Levinsky is all that I'm saying. <laughs> they have yeah, to come I, I in mean, every day and just grow E. coli. <laughs> I hope... I actually don't know, but I hope Lensky has a big, ena big enough lab to transition this task over a number of members. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's hope so at least. I also wanted to say something because um, I was also shocked by the project lasting like over 30 years by now. And in the paper, they mentioned that the strains that they used are derived from the B strain of E. coli. And typically they use K12 strains of E. coli uh, for studies on antibiotic resistance. But I mean, wouldn't that be awful to notice after 30 years that it's like, oh, they use a completely different strain for the kind of research that they want to do? I mean, that, that's something that occurred to me that was like, ooh, wouldn't want to appear as possible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I think it also very much 
depends on when you're talking about different backgrounds of wild types that you want to use for these types of experiments. And exactly as you say that depending on like what your research question is, I feel that such changes to your experiment can be uh, warranted. However, since this is uh, an experiment over time of change and not specifically like what makes a candidate suitable for particular poking of assays. I don't, I mean, for their sake, I hope that it's not, uh, <laughs> that it's not uh, Yeah, necessary. that was my main incentive. Like, I hope <laughs> this will not <laughs> influence their, <laughs> yeah, their re results in a huge way. But the thing is, as they took the B strain, not the K12, so they also found some bottleneck, like K12 has two major points, OMPC and OMPF, but E. coli B strain, it only has the OMPF, so they cannot compare with the OMPC, the, that gene. So that's kind of uh, um, the bottleneck of this thing, but I think that's acceptable. What would have been the difference between using these strains that have sort of diverged by uh, that have been grown over 30 years and diverged over 30 years and just using some different E. coli strains. I think it is um, depending on like what purpose is and what the the different type strains that were available at the time they started the experiments. I don't know like how the history of E. coli wild type has expanded over the last six years or whatever it was, but I'm guessing it, it has been developed quite substantially. Uh, so in that case, if that was the, the, the standard accepted uh, wild type that they were using when they started, then that would have been the one that they used. Uh, if that now, when we're now in our now more enlightened viewpoint of how a particular wild type is uh, is uh, used, perhaps it would be more appropriate to use something else. But we, we, when once they had like started, uh, I th I feel it would have been wrong to to, to switch. Yes, I think I think it's really cool that they, they this very long term experiment. So I'm happy that it has been done, but I'm just. Uh, and I don't think what they did was wrong in any way, but I'm just thinking uh, we're making sort of fairly big deal of this 30 year long sort of um, growth period. But what would the actual, would it have affected the outcome of the result if they had just used different E. coli strains? I'm just from sort of a, an experimental standpoint and sort of philosophical. I think it answers a slightly different question. Uh, I mean, in one sense, if you're looking a lot, uh, across a lot of different E. coli strains, what you will then look at is the sort of pan-genome um, antibiotic susceptibility or antibiotic resistance patterns. And in this case, it's more like you have these 12 starter populations that have been evolving in a pretty, in a stable environment that is pretty nice to them, uh, which is like not the type of environment that we, that you would typically find bacteria in, right? I mean, typically bacteria grow in very fluctuating environments and they um, would need to maintain accessory functions because they might be necessary in the future. I mean, in this case, you've been having bacteria growing for decades uh, in, a very, in an environment that is very friendly to them and is very constant. And I think... The interesting thing about that is that, as they note in here, is that a lot of these strains have lost 
uh, antibiotic tolerance. Which makes sense, because there's no point of having high, high antibiotic tolerance in, in, a, in an environment where you never meet that type of stressor. Uh, and I think this is perhaps the most valuable thing, because they start with something that has been having... I mean, these, these are really like the brats of E. coli. Uh, they, they have never had to fight for anything in their life. And then suddenly they are exposed to antibiotics and they have to handle that in some way. I think that's the interesting twist to this experiment. I mean, what can they do to sort of regain their resistance? Uh, and that sort of hints at resistance evolution in some sense. Uh, and I don't think that you would be able to do that on a... Um, diverse population of E. coli from different settings because what the difference in that case would be that they you could always explain away your findings with that but on the other hand this has been adapting in this type of environment so we can't really say for sure in this case you know these bacteria have been growing for what was it, like 70,000 generations uh, and we've been very nice to them through that period of time uh, so they are spoiled and then you put them in a stressful situation and you look at how they handle that. I think that's the the big difference. And I think that's also the big value of this experiment that you sort of can start from a population of E. coli that uh, have adapted to very non-challenging conditions. It makes sense then. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it, I think it's interesting with, I mean, since we are talking a lot about like disturbed ecosystems and disturbances to microbial communities, I mean, this is really the, like the opposite. This is not disturbing a microbial community for, or not a community, a population of E. coli for a very, very long time. Uh, and look at the consequences of not having disturbances and, and the consequences of having a very stable environment. And I think that's interesting on its own. I mean, they did grow them in minimal media, but... Yeah, I, uh, it's it's fluctuations and stuff. Um, I, I've yeah, but it's still. I mean, they they will adapt yeah, to minimal yeah. media, <laughs> but that I guess in in some sense that also will restrict them. I mean, they they uh, e- even having a more complex nutrient source will be stressful for them. I guess. My take-home message from all of this is antibiotic resistance evolution is complicated and it's not a straight, it's not as there is a straightforward answer to that this is the way that antibiotic resistance evolves. But instead, as most other microbial processes, it's a very multifaceted um, process that is impacted by a number of different factors, and all of these factors tend to interact with each other in weird ways. And as as we've seen, one of the key aspects, and this is something we've been pointing out before um, in our papers, one of the key aspects for antibiotic resistance evolution to have any impact on human health is that you also have a selection pressure that fixes these resistance mutations or these resistance genes in the genome. Um, because I think we saw that both in the pylori paper that as soon as you apply this antibiotic selection pressure, then these resistant variants take over in, in this in, in this thing that they call the soft sweep. Uh, 
And I, I, I think that this is also the driving mechanisms behind uh, what uh, we, we, behind what was observed in the first paper we discussed, um, where you see these resistance recruitment events. So that you also have to have this selection pressure, and it seems like it's the environments where you have a selection pressure where you find these recent origins of mobile resistance genes. Uh, so I think this is an important take-home message here from today as well. But it's time to wrap up. Uh, we've been a big crew this time, so thanks to everyone for the great discussion we've been having today. Uh, as usual, take care, stay healthy, and keep hanging on to the restrictions for a few more weeks. of Gothenburg. If you have any questions or comments about the content of the pod, send us a message on Twitter at Bengtsson Palman as one single word, or send an email to podcast at microbiology.se. If you like what you're hearing, please give us a five-star review in your closest uh, podcast store. And again, thank you for listening.